Well, this weekend was a wonderful weekend. Uh, I was able to go down to, to Pittsburgh to take part in Presbytery uh, and to be examined by them. And yes, it is a stressful thing, and yes, it is a, it is a grueling thing, but it is a joyful thing as well because we, we are part of a presbytery that takes very seriously the candidates and people that they allow to be pastors. And so I had this weird dichotomy while being down there of being terrified of everybody in the room, but also at the same time grateful for everybody in the room because we know that those who are questioned uh, and, and passed through, you know, it is not an easy road. And so praise the Lord that he upheld me and that I was able to come back in one piece and actually get some sleep. I had the best night's sleep that I have ever had since at least before I had a kid um, last night, and it was wonderful. And so um, one of the things that, I, that happened when I was down there, this happens somewhat frequently, is I, I got down the night before, and I was getting ready to check into a hotel, and I grabbed some dinner at Panera before I went to my room so that I'd have something to eat. And the, the place was an utter disaster. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, especially in the world we're in right now. Restaurants are kind of understaffed in a lot of ways. Um, they had so few people that they didn't have someone to man a register. And so they put iPads up for you to order on <laughs> so that they could have all the people actually making food so that you would eat more than you know, an hour later. Uh, and so they kind of profusely apologized. And they messed my order up three different times. Um, and so three different times I had to go up to the counter and ask. And one of the things that kind of stood out that the people that were helping me each time I went to just say, hey, you know, like they forgot to do, there, there was this mortified kind of apologetic nature to them. Um, they were really scared of what I was going to do or say. And it, it led me to wonder how many people throughout that day had berated those poor folks to the point where they were worried that because my tomato soup wasn't just right, <laughs> that I was going to somehow lay into them as if it was the end of the world. Um, and so I, I generally, this isn't a, a toot your own horn, but it's just to kind of tell you how the world, I generally say something along the lines of, like, if this is the worst part of my day, then we're doing pretty good, <laughs> right? And, and kind of laugh it off and, and just bring a little bit of joy. And they, they, they almost always are taken aback by that. Isn't it sad that when you have service staff in our, in our culture not berated that they're surprised. Right? We treat them incredibly poorly. Um, there's some stuff floating around that you probably have read that the least favorite shift of all wait staff is Sunday afternoon lunch because Christians are the meanest and the worst tippers. Um, I can tell you that this has actually been statistically disproven. Um, we, it's been shown that Christians are not by any stretch of imagination the worst tippers. But here's the thing. It is the perception of the service industry that that's the way it is. And so in the end, does it really matter if it's true or not? Perception oftentimes is reality, right? If we're perceived that way, then even if it's statistically irrelevant, well, we have a tendency as people, and not as God's people, but just as people in general, to kind of show an unbelievable lack of grace. And so the reason I talk about waitresses this morning is because our discussion this morning centers around grace. Right? A few weeks ago, we were digging into the various things that, that, as we look through Timothy's and Titus, that we see as Christians, as characteristics that we should adopt. And the very first one that we talked about was the need for good and proper doctrine, that we understand the word and understand what it means, and that we operate and everything we do flows from it. Today, we're going to talk about grace and the need for grace. And for that, let's go at the very beginning of our time to Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. It says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various passions and pleasures, and passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The question today is when we look at the grace that we have in our own lives and how we are called to live that grace out in the lives of others, how do we do that well, right? Both in terms of practical and spiritually. How can we actually be gracious to people that don't deserve it? And why should we be gracious people? Why does it matter? It seems like an easy question, but it's valid. Why is it so important that we as God's people live in grace to others? And so Timothy starts with this description of what he would call the former self in various points. Paul uses this phrase, you know, your former selves were this way and now you're this way. Or for once you were, but now you are. And so he gives us this list and he says things like foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions, envy filled. And it's a pretty damning list, but it's worth spending some time on. I want you to think about the kind of external life that a list like this produces in a person. And it sounds like these, these bad things, but if we're honest with ourselves, can every one of us think of a time that we were foolish, disobedient, my son Graham's downstairs right now when I see that word, he writes it on, led astray, right? We were all led somewhere by someone, right? Slaves to passions, there's things that we're passionate about, and so we do those things or pursue them versus the things we should pursue. Full of envy, anybody here never envious of another? Right? None of these things are really that odd of, of a list. And so what he's saying is that the former selves of us were consumed by these things. Right? We weren't inherently, like, we weren't good people that occasionally did some dumb... No, we were consumed by this. This is your identity apart from Christ. This is the reality of who we are, you and I, is we have these propensities. We all the time want to be this way when we're left to our own devices. Right? That's who we are. That's why the book of Romans spends half of its time putting you down as a person, right? Paul wants to make sure he understands we are sinners and we utterly fail. And Timothy or Titus here drives this point home. We were once this way. And so the question is, what happened that makes us not this way? And the answer is this, when the God's goodness and kindness appears, that's when things begin to change. We didn't get so bad that we hit rock bottom that we sat in our house and said, I can't live like this anymore, right? We didn't say, oh, that envy just got to go, and we threw it out, and we decided to move on. No, we were stuck, and the thing that changed stuff is that his goodness and kindness appeared. How did it appear? Through Christ on the cross crucified, and through the Spirit that comes and brings us into the fold of God that causes us to know him, right? Not by our own bootstraps, but by what? The mercy, washing, regeneration, and the Holy Spirit. Guess what you had to do with the person you are today? Zip. Nothing. You didn't contribute. 
You're not a factor in the man or woman, boy or girl that God is molding and shaping you to be. Left to your own devices, you are the first half of this text and nothing else. And so God comes in, and what does he do? So that, he did these things so that we could be justified by his grace and might become heirs. Undeserved heirs, by the way. And then verse 8, this saying must be insisted upon so that we might go and do likewise. This is this pattern of God's grace that permeates the whole Bible. What Timothy is doing here is he's describing all that happens from Genesis to Revelation. Right? If we think about it, the very first instance of God's grace is really that he made mankind at all. But in Scripture, what we see is in Genesis 3, the moment sin enters the world, we have this proto-evangelion that happens. God comes and he sees Adam and Eve and he's, they're walking in the garden and he, he says, you know, who told you you were naked? And then he finds out what happened, even though he's God and he already knew. And he condemns him and he says, what? Cursed are you. And he sends them out of the garden. But here's the kicker. The grace that hit is this. The punishment for what they did was death. We do not see them die. Right? Death enters the world. And death has a sting. But the moment Eve took that bite, she should have collapsed dead to the ground and been done with. And she wasn't. And that is the first display of the grace of God. Everything about Scripture, and when we start this next year, as we mentioned, to read the whole of the Bible together, it's important to understand this. Every single text in Scripture that you read, every one of them, points to a God that is holy and in charge. And from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve failed and acted a plan to graciously bring us back for no reason that we would deserve at all. Every single text in Scripture points to that in some way, shape, or form. At Presbytery last night, or yesterday morning, I preached on 2 Kings 2, 23 and 24. It's the passage where Elijah gets made fun of for being bald and causes bears to come out of the woods and kill children. That passage points to Christ. I know it's a leap to get there. Someday you'll get to hear that sermon. That's the one I have in my pocket for the, for the next bad week where I didn't have time to prepare. So the next time, I, when you hear about the she-bears, you'll know. Right? But literally, when I say every, everything in Scripture points to Christ in that way, I mean everything, even the she-bears. Right? What do we see? The Lord gives Adam and Eve a place. He sends them out of a garden, but he clothes them. He shows them mercy. As we get to the book, the Lord takes himself a people from, from Israel. He, he sends them out of Egypt. He leads them. And he calls them to be his people. Why does he call them to be his people? Why? We're going to get to that in a second, and it'll help us answer the question of why we show grace. Right? The Lord takes them when they do not deserve it, and he carries them through all of the Old Testament to the time of Jesus. Even through the exile, in everything God does, he's showing grace. And in everything, I don't know why it's doing that, and in every single thing that we do, that the people of God do in response, we show a lack of appreciation for that grace. What is scripture and the story of it other than God doing good and the people responding by not accepting him and doing wickedness? The whole point of the Old Testament is to show us that no matter what rule or reign is established, whether it be judges or kings or prophets or anything that comes into play, nothing ever measures up. Nothing. There's no rule 
There's no president that somehow is going to cause us to be a theocracy and be worshipers of God in a perfect way. If only we elected... No, it doesn't matter. We are right at the very get-go, and we have no hope whatsoever. And it is God who upholds through his grace. Israel contributes nothing. And so then Christ comes in a bodily form, and he demonstrates his grace in a perfect way. And here is the greatest kicker. As the Lord Jesus commits his most singular, perfect act of grace and mercy, that very act is committed by the most single greatest act of betrayal of God's people. Do you ever think about that? The death of Christ on the cross that is for us the singular, most hopeful event in human history is the biggest instance, the most brazen instance of rejection of Christ. Christ died because his people killed him. That's us. Talk about a grace that is not deserved. I've seen a million movies where, you know, there's the hero and he goes and he dies. One of my favorite movies is Armageddon. And, you know, the guy that stays behind and blows it up so that the planet can live. Well, imagine if the people were the ones that blew him up. Right? That's, that's the thing here. We, we serve a God who, in the midst of our greatest betrayal and rejection of him, committed his greatest act of redemption for us. And that's what makes Christ's death so astonishing. His grace comes over and over and over again. And we are called to carry that grace forward. Here's the words of Jesus in his earthly ministry. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees and implored him, have patience with me and I will do everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that it had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And so the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, you forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. Or I forgave you all that debt. And you should not have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you. And so in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, and he should pay all his debt. And also, also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The story of Scripture is a story of unmerited grace. We sit here in this congregation today as followers of Christ because he has chosen you, and he has enabled you to come to the feet of the cross, the foot of the cross. That's the only reason you're here. And so Jesus tells us this. When we go out in the world, we are to do likewise. And so beginning with these questions, why do we show grace? How can we show grace? And what does it look like? Here's the why. pattern that God has set. Showing grace to the world around you is what you were saved to. Right? Why did God create man? 
to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the very first of the Westminster Catechisms, right? We are made as God's people so that it would bring him glory. The creation exists because it was made out of the abundance of God's love and care and glory so that when we look at it and when we look at mankind as a reflection, we would be in awe of the God who made us. We weren't created because God needed us to clap for him. He has no need of us. He is perfect within the trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he made us to give him glory. And so when sin entered the world, he eventually got to the point where he called himself a people Israel. So that those people would reflect his glory. Do you ever think, why did he save the people from Egypt? They didn't deserve it. He saved them so that as they walk around the earth, the people that see them would see them live in such a way. That's why they have the Ten Commandments. All those are is a, here's what it looks like to be God's people. I want you to live this way so that the people in the world will see it and go, that's how it's supposed to work. That, that glory to God for what we're seeing. And we today are called out for the same exact reason. He calls us, he saves us, and he extends to us mercy and grace for the sole singular purpose so that the world would see us and through us see the glory of God and give praise and honor to him and him alone. And so if we as a people of God do not extend grace to the world around us that is radical, that goes against everything we think is good and just and fair, right? Oh, I hate the word fair. We'll get to that in a second. Right? If we don't do that, we're not doing what we were made to do. We're not doing what we were saved by God through Christ to do. And so that's the answer to how, in a practical sense, can we show grace? Because here's the thing. Grace is costly. The grace of God given to us is free, but for us to show it to others costs a lot. It costs pride. It costs patience. It costs resources. It means that we will show kindness and love to people who may never show kindness and love back to us. It means that on occasion we may have to turn the other cheek a couple times over. It means that the people in our lives that we have no desire to show any kind of degree of patience or time for are the very people that we are called to show grace to. So that when we do that, the world would go, this is how it's supposed to work. And the only way that we can be gracious like that, that we can have a radical forgiveness, right? That parable comes after they're asking, how many times should we forgive a brother? Seven times, and Jesus says, no, seven times, 70 times. And then he tells the parable, right? If you ask, how can I forgive the person who has done the unforgivable to me? Well, you can do it because you serve a God who has forgiven you when you have done the unforgivable to him. Each and every day. That's the how. So what do we do? We show grace when we give mercy to people that we've wronged. We show grace when we're the first person to offer forgiveness. We show grace when we strive to be the city on a hill. We show grace when we care about the world around us and we bear with people who don't deserve to be born with. We have to be the leaders of caring for the least of these. That's how we show grace. You want to show grace in this community, start caring for the least of these. 
One of the things that, that we're going to look at as a church is how can we be known as a place that cares for the least of these in this area? I would love nothing more. If we're known for a great program here, if we're known for a great phenomenal worship better than anyone else's, what I would love to see is that we're known, oh, Stowe, yeah, that's that church that cares for people in a way that I've never seen before. Man, they're relentless. They show grace to everybody. It's crazy. I don't know why they do it. Well, come and sit and we'll tell you why. Right? That would be the vision. We have to be quick to demonstrate grace to one another. And especially, we must be quick to demonstrate grace to one another within our own church context. There ought to be no quarreling among the people of God. None at all. There can be reasons for quarreling or cause for quarreling. But if you have brothers and sisters within the body of Christ that, that there's strife between the two of you, go show them grace. Do it today. As a matter of fact, when we pray here in a moment, we're going to come down to the table. Do it before you come forward. If there are people in this room that you have quarrels with, I would invite you, as we get ready to partake the elements, go over to them and offer ask for forgiveness before you come forward, and then after that, come forward together and take the body and the blood of Christ. We are to be a people that demonstrate a radical grace. And here's the thing. If you go, well, but not that person. That's exactly who. That is why it, it doesn't make sense in the world in which we live. It should be weird to you. It should be foreign. Your gut should say, no, I don't want to do that. Because that's exactly how the kingdom of God works. We offer that grace when it's not deserved because we received it when we were at our most wretched, when we were envious, when we were foolish, when we to sin. That is how we as Christians ought to function. The first mark of a follower of Christ is that he's full of the sound doctrine and biblical understanding of what God says through his word. The second is that he is full of a measure of grace. He's known, he or she is known as a person that is filled with mercy, that is quick to forgive. If that does not describe you, I don't want to make you feel guilty, but I invite you to pray. I invite you to seek the Lord's face and I invite you to, to have him in of your mind the people that you need to be gracious and forgiving to you. And I would tell you, before you lay your head on your pillow tonight, make those phone calls, go to those doors, sit down with somebody, grab a cup of coffee, I'll buy it for you. And see what the Lord does with that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have shown us the grace that we don't deserve. Lord, we think of the things that we've done, the thoughts that we've had, those things that we think in private that would shock the people around us. And Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we understand that we are as wretched as they come. Our instinct is not to glorify you. Our instinct is to glorify ourselves. And in the midst of that, you came. And you showed us mercy. And you made us heirs to your kingdom through the blood of Christ. We praise you and we thank you for that reality. That we can rest in you. 
And so, Lord, in the midst of that, we ask that you would give us the strength to demonstrate that grace to others. We ask that you would empower us, that you would put people at the forefront of our minds that we need to show forgiveness to, that we need to be gracious with and patient with and loving with and supportive with. Be with us as we go out and be with us as we take this meal. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said, Amen.